Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here, and once again I have my co-host Dewey Doval with me, and we are Excited today to be discussing the topic, Cornelius Van Til, and we're going to be discussing Van Til with Dr. Lane Tipton. So, Dr. Tipton, welcome to the podcast, brother. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dewey. Uh, it's wonderful to be here, brothers. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and Dr. Tipton, since you are a first-time guest on the Covenant podcast, would you uh, be willing to start our conversation today by telling our audience a little bit about yourself, uh, whatever you want to share, your family, your education, your ministry, your conversion to Christ, whatever you want to share at this point. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, I've been married for coming up on 30 years, have four wonderful, wonderful children. One is married, two are in college, one is still in high school. Uh, My wife, Charlene, works in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church home offices. Uh, I'm currently a pastor and uh, Easton, Pennsylvania at Trinity Orthodox Presbyterian Church. I'm also a teaching fellow in Biblical and Systematic Theology at Reform Forum. Uh, I have a bachelor's degree from Southwestern Oklahoma State in English. I did the equivalent of a master's degree with Greg Bonson back in the late 80s, early 90s in philosophy and apologetics. Didn't take the degree. It was with the Southern California Center for Christian Studies. I got an MDiv in 1998 from Westminster, California. And then I took a PhD from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia in 2003. And my doctoral work focused on Cornelius Van Til's Doctrine of the Trinity. And so that kind of brings us, I guess, full circle to what we might be talking about uh, with regard to some of you know uh, Van Til's development and theology and contributions to uh, Reformed uh, dogmatic theology and and apologetics, but that gives you, a, I, I hope, a, a, a bit of a summary. I've been or, ordained as a pastor since 2015 at Trinity. Well, we are very excited to have you on the show today to talk about one of the most important and most polarizing figures in Reformed circles during the 20th century. And, uh, you know, I think there's been a lot of ink spilled even over the past few years over Cornelius Van Til, uh, his thought, whether or not he's orthodox uh, in terms of uh, his doctrine of the Trinity, or at least in, at least if he's consistent with the Reformed confessions in that regard and his approach to apologetics. So really excited to get into those topics today. But before we get too deep into the weeds, um, since our discussion is focusing on Cornelius Van Til and his thought, I think a good starting point would be to focus on the man himself. So, um, Dr. Tipton, just given your expertise and knowledge on uh, Van Til, would you be willing to provide us with just an overview of his life, um, some of the m- uh, more significant figures that influenced his thought, and um, maybe just any other intriguing insights that you could share on Van Til that would be profitable to our listeners, many of which uh, may be encountering Van Til for the very first time. Oh, sure, sure. It'd be a delight. Uh, Van Til was born in a farmhouse uh, in Grothast, Holland on May 3rd, 1895. And he was the sixth of eight children who were born to a devout dairy farmer who worshipped with the Reformed Offscheiding Party, who rejected the doctrine of presumptive regeneration of baptized children. And here's something ironic. He grew up uh, for 10 years in Holland 
And at the age of 10, they moved to um, Rotter from Rotterdam to America and lived in Highland, Indiana. And Van Til grew up thinking that dairy farming was what he would probably wind up pursuing instead of theology. He was very uh, fascinated with it, very committed to it. And um, it's, it's ironic. One of the greatest minds in the 20th century uh, in theology and apologetics wanted to be a humble Dutch uh, dairy farmer. Uh, and his uh, academic influences, um, he was nicknamed by his teachers the Big Klompa because he wore wooden Dutch shoes, Klompen. And he showed unusual ability as a student. And in 1914, he went to Calvin Preparatory School and College, which was the educational center of the Christian Reformed Church at the time. And then he enrolled in Calvin Theological Seminary in 1921. And it's there that he became particularly uh, influenced by Herman Bovink and Abraham Kuyper. He showed a unique ability to understand philosophy and theology, learned Greek, Hebrew, and Latin in addition to Dutch and English. And at the during his time at Calvin, he studied under Louis Burkhoff. And it was there that Van Til's love for the Reformed faith kind of received a systematic theological uh, formation. Uh, the systematic defense of the Reformed faith never left Van Til. If you read his uh, most important works, um, the Survey of Christian Epistemology, the Defense of the Faith, um, and other works, he's always setting out the system of Reformed theology. And that was etched in his heart and mind in 21 and following, where he studied under Louis Burkhoff. And um, he left... Uh, that at, at, at he left uh, to to go to move on and study at uh, Princeton. After he finished some work at Calvin, he he went in the um, uh, mid twenties to study under William Harry Jellema, who at the time was an outstanding idealist. Uh, he was probably one of the most well versed idealists of the day, and. Um, Van Til learned absolute idealism and its German expressions with Hegel, American expressions with Royce, its English expressions with Bernard Bosanquet or Bosanquet, depending on the pronunciation. And, 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 and that moved Van Til to see that there is a direct uh, critique that the system of Reformed theology can offer against idealism. And I won't get into the details, but it consists most basically in this. Van Til learned from Burkhoff, from uh, Bovink, and others uh, that God is self-contained and absolute in his relation to creation. And Van Til studied under the finest absolute idealists of the day. And the thing he recognized is that they all, to a man, believe that the absolute is in development along with history, that the changing features of history apply to the absolute. And so Van Til transfers to Princeton 1922, learns the best of Reformed theology at the seminary, learns the best of theistic personalism and absolute idealism at Princeton University. Um, and so, so what you have setting up in Van Til's career is someone who does two things that are quite amazing. He he begins to understand at a profound level the system of Reformed theology, 
And he begins to understand at a profound level the contemporary absolute idealists of the day. And while he is at Princeton, Van Til comes to be influenced not only by Warfield and Hodge and Robert Dick Wilson and others, but his favorite professor was Gerhardus Voss. And Danny Olinger, in his um, biography, intellectual biography of Voss, notes that Van Til was one of two students who would sit in on all of the courses that Voss offered and almost had a tutorial under Voss. That's something Bonson shows some awareness of in his uh, Van Til's apologetics, but uh, Olinger really brings out that it was Voss who exerted an unusual influence on Van Til so that the deeper Protestant conception of Voss really got, uh, I think Van Til got to hear that in a sustained way. Voss was writing the dog, had written the dogmatics by the time Van Til was there, was teaching the Pauline eschatology uh, in uh, seminal form while Van Til was there. And, and it was uh, out of that context that Van Til wound up becoming one of the founding members of Westminster Theological Seminary in uh, 1929 and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 1936. And the last point, um, John Meether makes this, Van Til remained, above all, throughout his career, a servant of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and a minister of the word before he was a professor at the seminary. Van Til was a robust and wonderful churchman. And that, that that's just to put him in context, that gives a little bit of the background, educational influences, and identity of the man that I consider to be uh, easily the most important apologist of the 20th century, but I believe also one of the most important theologians of the 20th century. And um, so that gives you a little bit of a background in, in terms of Van Til, the man, uh, the theologian, the churchman, gives you a little sense of his educational background and his service of the church uh, and at Westminster Theological Seminary. Yeah, well, thank you for that. That was very helpful for getting our conversation started on uh, Van Til and his thought. Uh, but within the past few months, it was announced that you will be teaching a course at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary on Van Til. And the title of that course is Recovering the Orthodox Van Til. It will be offered on the CBTS campus on January 5th through the 7th. And um, so we want to ask you, Dr. Tipton, would you be willing to share a little bit about how this teaching opportunity originated? And what do you hope the students will glean from Cornelius Van Til after taking this course? Yeah. Um, well, here's what I would. Uh, th this is this is originated in part from uh, my friendship with Dewey, and from uh, sustained discussions about Van Til's theology through the, our Reformed Forum Academy, and um, a, a desire, a mutual desire, to see the best of confessional Reformed theology. Uh, be presented in a way that serves the church, informs pastors, and helps us in our theological worship of the self-contained Trinity. Um, and and so the 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 background for the course, in, in large part, is a desire to see the, uh, as Van Til would say, 
Calvinism as Christianity come to its own, reasserted in terms of theology and worship and apologetics, undergirding a, a very distinctive Reformed witness over against, on the one side, traditional and maybe even contemporary Roman Catholic approaches, whether it's Thomas Aquinas and Robert Bellarmine, or whether it's Karl Rahner. Uh, and then on the other side, the modernist or new modernist views of Karl Barth um, and those who are following a neo-Orthodox understanding of the uh, in, uh, errant scriptures and a, uh, a God who has his being and becoming. Uh, there, there's a there's there's a distinct confessional reformed voice that Van Til gives that must be heard that stands opposed to both the medieval dialecticism of traditional Roman Catholicism and the modern dialecticism of the mainline Karl Barth and others and the voices that Van Til integrates. So this is this is a, a, a broad swatch, but Ventil integrates Augustine, Calvin. He he integrates the continental Dutch tradition exemplified by Hermann Bovink and the English Puritan tradition represented by, uh, for instance, A. A. Hodge in his commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith, B. B. Warfield and others, and 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 so you have this this. Augustinian Calvinist confessional convergence of the very best of the Reformed tradition in the Trinitarian theology of Van Til and in the federal theology of Van Til. And what I like to try to do in setting Van Til in context is to help people recognize that Van Til is not a biblicist and mutualist like some of the contemporary uh, uh, proponents that claim his name are. Van Til is committed to the system of doctrine contained in the scriptures, properly exegeted, and then summarized in the creeds and confessions of the Reformed Church. And the more you look at Van Til, the more you are astonished at the programmatic depth of an ecumenical reformed mind. Everyone thinks Van Til emphasizes antithesis. In proper context, he does. Antithesis to Rome, antithesis to Bart, less consistent Calvinism, Arminianism, Lutheranism. But if you, if you get a wider angle lens on Van Til, you recognize that at the heart of it all, he is a unique convergence of the very best of the continental and English Puritan traditions. And he's applying confessional Trinitarianism and confessional federalism to all forms of correlativism. And by correlativism, I mean any view that teaches God changes to become like the creature and develop over time, or the idea that the creature is elevated to participate in the essence of God. That former error is what you find in Bart and Frame and Oliphant and other mutualists. That second error is what you find in Aquinas and Bellarmine and traditional Roman Catholicism. I call it front and back door mutualism. But Van Til is avoiding both of those errors by promoting a robust, integrated Reformed Trinitarian orthodoxy in the service of Reformed Covenant theology. And so my hope 
uh, Austin, is I'm not sure exactly how many hours I'll be able to squeeze all this in. We'll, we'll be thinking about that. But in the time we have, my hope is that the students might recognize that uh, contrary to some of the second generation Vantillians, Van Til is not a biblicist. Van Til is not a mutualist. Van Til is not an idealist. Van Til is not innovating. Van Til is not departing from the Reformed tradition. Probably the best way to think of Van Til is he is one of the foremost heirs of the Vossian legacy of dogmatic and biblical theology. Voss is the father of Reformed biblical theology and a dogmatician of the absolute highest order, as we've seen from his works. And Van Til got virtually tutored by him while at Princeton. And I want the students to, to, to put it one last way. I want them to see that robust Vossian influence on Van Til, that when you look at his primary sources, you look at his works, it just bleeds through and impacts everything he's saying from Trinitarian theology to covenant theology to Christology to the identity of the church and the consummation of all things at the end of this age. So that that would be my goal. Uh, it's a pretty programmatic goal, but because Van Til has done this so thoroughly, it's a very achievable one. Well, as somebody who has now been in three of the cohorts in the Reformed Fellowship or the Fellowship and Reformed Apologetics at Reformed Forum, I can personally attest that uh, your work in the thought of Van Til, the Trinitarian theology of Van Til, and uh, just the apologetic methodology of Van Til as a whole has been exceptional. So for those who are listening to this episode, whenever it's released, and whether you're a current student at CBTS or if you're in the Owensboro, Kentucky area, or if you're like me, you'll be passing through uh, during the dates of January 5th to the 7th of 2023. You do not want to miss this course if you're able to attend. So uh, that's just a uh, that's a plug for uh, Dr. Tipton's work here, and hope you'll strongly consider gleaning from this forthcoming course on recovering the Orthodox Van Til. But I want to transition now in our discussion, Dr. Tipton. Uh, you, you already mentioned some of the key figures who influenced the theology and the thought of Van Til as a whole. You, you've mentioned Calvin now. You've mentioned uh, Voss. Uh, there were some allusions as well to Herman Bavink. Um, we'd be interested to know how each of those figures um, specifically influenced Van Til uh, during uh, his relationships with them, whether personally or academically. And if there's any additional figures that you think are key to understanding Van Til, then uh, we would love to hear your insights that you could share on those matters. Sure, sure. Well, I, I actually, uh, I, I've got a volume coming out in, uh, it's, it's a firm date now. So this is, this is a huge advance. August 2nd, uh, Reform Forum is going to publish the refinement of my doctoral dissertation. I guess I should call it a kind of perfection of it because I, I rewrote the entire dissertation to make it more programmatic, robust, detailed, and vigorous. And it's going to be entitled The Trinitarian Theology of Cornelius Van Til. And in that volume early on, I, uh, I, I try to observe that if you, if you look at the, the structure of Van Til's thought, he is more rigorously than any theologian in the 20th century, as far as I can see, um, certainly in the top three in the Reformed tradition, 
Um, so I'm trying to save some room for debate so we can all, all, you know, have a meaningful discussion of it. I'd put him at the top of the list, but let's just say top three. He is so programmatic in applying the ontological Trinitarian relations, the relations of origin in the processions, the relations of subsistence, the relations of coherence, uh, traditional, reformed, Trinitarian theology, he is seeking to apply that comprehensively to the God-world relation, whether it's in general revelation, special revelation in the covenant of works, it's perfection in the covenant of grace and the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the theologians, if I were to pick the theologians that I think were most influential on Ventil and narrow it down, I think it would be Calvin, the old Princeton faculty under whom he studied, Bavink, and um, Gerhardus Voss. Now, Kuiper figures in, other Reformed theologians figure in, so I'm being very selective. Uh, but uh, it was especially through his reading of Calvin's Institutes, Bovink's Reformed Dogmatics, Danny Olinger has confirmed to me that Van Til did have the Dogmatics of Voss um, and was reading them, uh, along with A.A. A. Hodge's work on the Westminster Confession of Faith and Charles Hodge and so on. The, those, those converge to form Van Til, I think, as, as someone who, who came to recognize that if you if you boil down the heart of Christianity and you ask what makes it distinctive in its most basic metaphysical commitments, he would say it's the ontological trinity, the self-contained, immutable, living um, ontological trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And his whole theology is going to consist in an attempt programmatically to bring the doctrine of the ontological trinity to every locus in the dogmatic enterprise and to every problem in the history of theology and in the history of philosophy and so the i think what you the the influence on van til of those theologians along with his exposure through jelema to absolute idealism it really set Van Til up uniquely as someone who was given the wealth, the riches of the Augustinian Calvinist traditions mediated through the Dutch and the English Puritans. And then he was studying under the best philosophers of his day in the absolute idealist tradition. And so you get, and this is why Van Til sometimes hard to understand, you get someone who has hit rock bottom in terms of the Reformed confessional tradition. He's a Trinitarian theologian and a covenant theologian of the highest order, and someone who has penetrated the Greek philosophers, Kant, Hegel, and the history of Western philosophy in an unusual way. And when you put those two basic influences together, I'm not trying to repeat too much of what I said earlier, but advance it a little bit. When you put those two uh, categories together. Someone who has mastered the theological tradition um, has just been saturated in it from a from a young age, 
and someone who, as he migrates to Princeton, comes into contact with the very best philosophy of the day. That's what makes Van Til so unique and, in many people's minds, so difficult to understand. Because Van Til's assuming, you know Calvin, Bavink, Voss, and the Westminster Standards like he does. Van Til's assuming that you might know Hegel or F.H. Bradley or Kant or Plato like he does. And so what characterizes Van Til, what makes it so difficult, I think, for people to understand him, given these influence, influences, it's not that Van Til's unclear. It's that we're unclear on the things in terms of which he was so clear. And so I'm not trying to say Van Til was the most lucid writer or thinker of all time, but I am saying this, his mastery and depth of penetration and his understanding shows that the fundamental problem is with his interpreters who lack his background and mastery of all those primary sources. And so what I try to do, for instance, in the upcoming course, what we're trying to do with Reformed Academy is we're trying to catch up. <laughs> we're trying to catch up to the depth dimension that marks his work because Van Til is a theologian of the highest order. So it's just like trying to understand Augustine or Aquinas or Calvin or Voss or Bavink. You really have to take your time. And it takes a lot of work and discipline, a lot of prayerful reading and reflection to get to the heart of what Van Til's saying. And so those influences that I just talked about, unless those are influences you're really familiar with, it can become almost intimidating, Dewey, uh, in terms of understanding his work. And and we're trying to to, to get behind those things uh, in some of the courses we're doing at Reform Forum, the course I'll be doing uh, in January. We'll try to put him in context so that he can become more accessible and understandable and his theology can be seen for what it is, a true reaffirmation and advancement of Reformed Confessional Trinitarian Covenant Theology. Hmm. Thank you for that. That was really, really helpful. Um, this next question that I want to transition to, I want to preface it by saying that uh, at the Covenant Podcast, we have no intention to have a, a gotcha against someone that we may disagree with, but we recognize that with Van Til, there is heated controversy in uh, some spheres, and some people have attributed things to Van Til that perhaps not everybody would agree with. So there is a lot of heat on this subject. Um, more specifically, there has been a growing concern amongst some self-identifying Reformed Christians that Van Til was not consistent with the great tradition of Christian orthodoxy. So without having any type of a gotcha answer or, or hostile sure. attack sure. at uh, someone who may raise this objection, what would be your response to those who claim that Van Til was out of step with classical Christian theism or that his approach to the defending the faith was inconsistent with how Reformed theologians have done so in the past? Yeah, that, that's a, a wonderful question. I, I actually have something that I think might be healing here because right? I'm always trying to heal. I really am. I'm, my, my goal is to bring light and warmth and not... Um, anything that would harm other people or, or make uh, hurdles for people. But um, I'll, I'll get to this indirectly. 
Um, I've been reading an introduction by John Fesco to um, Gerhardus Voss's Natural Theology. And um, uh, Fesco writes an introduction, and I uh, just emailed him just a, a, a few weeks ago and told him I was going to be interacting with his work where he claimed uh, that Voss and Aquinas share a common natural theology. And I'm, I'm going to just tell you, I'm so relieved to hear this. He wrote back and said, I didn't mean to argue that. That's not my intention. Uh, Voss and Aquinas don't share a common natural theology. I thought that's what he was arguing. It appeared that way, but he said, that's not my intention. There's just instead a larger tradition that has interest in the possibility or prospect of natural theology, deals with similar texts. But he was by no means wanting to recognize that there was a common natural theology between Voss and Aquinas. Now, let me tell you why I'm so excited about that. I'm working on an essay right now that shows, I think quite clearly, I think it can be demonstrated very easily, that Voss's deeper Protestant conception uh, means that he has a distinctively reformed doctrine of natural theology that stands over against the distinctive Roman Catholic doctrine of natural theology advocated by Thomas Aquinas. And so it, I, I believe Fesco, uh, I'm going to clear this with him before I put it in print, you know, just make sure uh, he's okay with me putting this in, in an article. But if you acknowledge that there is no common natural theology between Voss and Aquinas, if you concede that, which I'm, I'm thrilled to hear people concede that, I'm thrilled for, to hear Fesco concede that. Then what you recognize is there's a there's a common tradition interested in natural theology, but there are different natural theologies. There's a Reformed natural theology. There's a Roman Catholic natural theology. Uh, I've been teaching on this in the Reformed Forum course. Dewey's taking with me. Uh, we're going to be talking about it in detail. But here's what I want you to appreciate. Cornelius Van Til criticizes Thomas Aquinas's conception of natural theology and follows lockstep with Voss. Now, Voss is, uh, it might be saying some things in his earlier years that aren't as well refined as Van Til. I mean, it's hard to compare Van Til in his prime to Voss in his late 20s when he's just writing the dogmatics and the natural theology, getting ready to teach courses. But Van Til learned this somewhere. And where he learned it, preeminently, was with Voss. And so I think we can say this, that where, where there might be some differences in emphasis, I think the deeper Protestant conception of nature, image, and sin in Voss is precisely what you find being advocated by Voss's dear friend, Bavink, and by Voss's favorite student um, and um, most probably productive student, Cornelius Van Til. And so um, when it comes to the, to the quote-unquote great tradition and Van Til not fitting with it, here's what we have to recognize. That great tradition has at least two divergent expressions that are within Christendom, lowercase uh, Catholic, uh, Catholic teaching. 
There's the Roman Catholic movement toward a sacramental view of nature, where nature has to be reproportioned. There's no direct and implanted knowledge of God. Sin doesn't corrupt the whole nature. You just lose super added gifts, which Thomas affirms explicitly in 85 of the Summa. Um, and, and then there is a view of natural theology that says nature is intrinsically in religious fellowship with God. Natural knowledge is naturally implanted. And Adam doesn't need ontological supplementation. He needs covenant. And when Adam sins, his whole nature is corrupted. That's a fundamental antithesis right there. And, and so within the so-called great tradition, we have to recognize that there is a movement called the Protestant Reformation. And that Reformation is a breach with some of the deepest structures of traditional Roman Catholic theology beyond justification and beyond scripture, it goes all the way down to divergent conceptions of nature, grace, and sin, antithetically contrasted. In fact, I'll just say this, Voss's Reformed Dogmatics 2.18 draws a categorical distinction, and I'm sorry to use, this is a little compressed, but I'm just trying to get it out a categorical distinction between the deeper Protestant conception of the Reformed and the traditional Roman Catholic conception of Thomas Aquinas and Robert Bellarmine. And the difference, I just decided not to use the technical terms, the difference is simply this, that religion is natural and intrinsic to Adam as an image bearer. All he needs is a covenant. And for the Roman Catholics, traditional Roman Catholics, Thomas, Bellarmine, etc., Voss is explicit that religion is supernatural and extrinsic to Adam. It has to be infused within him. So there are divergent conceptions of religion between the traditional Reformed, classical Reformed, and traditional Roman Catholic. So to put that in perspective, Austin, when, when people are talking about Van Til departing from the great tradition, I'm going to make a twofold distinction. Van Til is actually seeking to perfect the Catholic Reformed tradition that you find in, uh, I think, embryonically in Augustine, Calvin, Westminster Confession, Bavinck, Old Princeton, and Voss. He's trying to perfect that. So Van Til is a Catholic Reformed theologian seeking to develop that great tradition of natural and covenant theology. But he is antithetical, as was Voss, as is Strimple, as was Murray, as was Machen, to the Roman Catholic divergence from that great tradition. And I think what's happening right now um, the, in, in works like contemplating God in the great tradition is there's a kind of inattention to the radical differences that exist between traditional Roman Catholic and classical reformed conceptions of nature, image, sin, grace, and beatitude. And so that's a fairly long answer to say that I, I think Van Til is an advocate of the great tradition as it has been refined by the Reformation and the Reformed Confessions, but he is critical of the departure from the Reformed tradition found in the uh, in the earlier works of Aquinas, the Counter-Reformation works of Bellarmine, and the contemporary Thomists who are claiming Thomas and setting that view directly over against traditional Protestant or Reformed Covenant theology. So that th 
that that's a lot to say, but it's just to to say that that we've got to be careful because often these critics just ask loaded questions. And you've got to step back and be more sophisticated than what some of these questions are presupposing. Well, I couldn't agree more uh, with the insight, Dr. Tipton, especially given the fact that, um, as you mentioned just a few moments ago, you're, you're doing a course right now with Reformed Forum on um, Van Til's doctrine of revelation and his understanding of revelation. And recently on the Christ the Center podcast that you put on with Reformed Forum, um, you did an episode titled Van Til, Aquinas, and the Natural Knowledge of God, which really, I believe, dovetails well with what you just elaborated on in response to our previous question. So um, in light of some of the, the recent research that you've done regarding Van Til's epistemology, his understanding of revelation, and having that juxtaposed with uh, the, the so-called um, Thomistic or even Reformed Thomistic epistemology or the, the Reformed Thomistic approach to understanding um, revelation, particularly natural revelation. Um, would you be able to, to draw, some out, uh, draw out some of those distinctions between a um, so-called Reformed Thomistic epistemology um, versus a Van Tilian epistemology? And in doing so, as I know you do in the course at Reformed Forum, and as you mentioned in that recent podcast episode, you talk a lot about concreated knowledge of God versus the capacity for man to obtain knowledge of God. And of course, those are both inextricably linked to either a Reformed epistemology, uh, namely a Vantillian epistemology, versus a, um, a Thomistic epistemology. So would you be willing to, to maybe uh, tease out some of those details for our listeners? I know this can be pretty complex stuff, so uh, please feel free to elaborate as much as you see fit to do so. Sure, sure. And, and it's... it's um there's a level of complexity here, but there's also a, um, a kind of simplicity uh, uh, on the point. Let me um, summarize. Let me give you a quote from Francis Turretin and then set it in context to the traditional Roman Catholic view. Um, Francis Turretin um, says this in his Institutes of Electic Theology. He says, there is implanted in man a knowledge of God and sense of divinity, of which man can no more be destitute than of a rational intellect. He cannot vest himself of it without putting off himself. Now, the reason why that, that quotation is so um, arresting is it's doing two things. It's critiquing traditional Roman Catholic theology on the topic, and it's reaffirming in what I consider to be one of the strongest conceivable ways Calvin's doctrine of implanted natural knowledge, which Calvin called the sense of divinity. And so, uh, Dewey, as we've been looking at Van Til in the course and to familiarize um, your listeners with it, um, it's really, uh, if I could put it in basic, basic terms. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, this is how basic I'm trying to be, question 10, says that the image of God consists, in addition to dominion over the creatures, these three things. That the image of God consists in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. 
And let me start with the things that I hope your listeners are familiar with. Traditional Thomistic uh, Roman Catholic theology denies original righteousness and original holiness. Adam is like God in that he has an intellect and a will, but due to his composite nature, he is trending toward the satisfaction of lower appetites instead of the higher appetites. And so what does he need? He needs gifted, infused righteousness and holiness to check that propensity to satisfy the lower appetites. It's called concupiscence. He's trending in the wrong way, so he needs an additional infusion of supernatural righteousness and holiness. Well, Calvin in the Reformed tradition, looking at that, said, no way. Adam was not defective. Adam wasn't trending toward the gratification of lower natures. Adam, because he was given righteousness and holiness right along with the image of God, because it wasn't a supernaturally added gift, but a concreated, naturally implanted gift. He was created with holy affection toward God and with an inclination to love and worship and serve God. He wasn't created in a way where he was adrift. He was a created, mightily inclined toward God. In addition, the shorter catechism following Calvin says that knowledge was implanted along with righteousness and holiness. So when you think of original righteousness and holiness, add to that the trifecta of knowledge. And John Murray, when he talks about the nature of knowledge in scripture, what is it? A special interest in and delight in another. So Adam was created in a communion bond by which he had a special interest in and a delight in God as he worshiped him in fellowship and walked in righteousness and holiness and heard and submitted to God's covenantal revelation in the covenant of works. Over against that, Thomas Aquinas and traditional Thomism um, say this, that Adam was created with an inner light of reason, but if he wanted to attain natural knowledge of God. He could only attain it as he started with sensible objects and traced them back inferentially to a supernatural cause, a cause that would be immutable or simple or assay, a non-composite, and, and lacking all of the imperfections in the creature. But for Thomas, the natural, connatural knowledge of God is suspended at the end of an inferential process. Um, it's a work attained through the proper use of reason. And for the Reformed, Calvin, Turretin, uh, Voss, Bavink says something very similar to this, uh, Van Til, that natural knowledge is implanted and inalienable and is the interior logic for the natural religious fellowship that man has with God. And Voss is explicit, Roman Catholics are explicit. There is no natural religious fellowship with God. It has to be supernaturally infused so that Adam can ascend the chain of being, rise up and have fellowship with God and eventually see his essence. So the bottom line on this, uh, Dewey, is that the reformed affirm original righteousness, holiness, and knowledge that consists in natural religious fellowship with God. And all Adam needed was a covenant to advance that. 
The Roman Catholics affirm none of those things, instead say they are super added so that the defect of Adam, he doesn't have original righteousness, he doesn't have original knowledge of God, he doesn't have original holiness, what does he need? He needs an ontological and ethical supplement to confer those supernaturally upon him and elevate him above his essence to participate in the essence of God. Radically different conceptions of man in relation to God. And this has been so overlooked in the contemporary discussion. But if you go back to the older theologians, go back to Bavink, go back to Voss, go back to Van Til, go back to Robert Strimple. This is fundamental to the Reformed faith. And when we're talking about recovering Van Til, we're talking about recovering this among many other things. This must be recovered or we're going to lose a distinctively reformed doctrine of man in relation to God as it's eclipsed by a classical or traditional Roman Catholic view. And the two are not reconcilable. Reformed Thomism on this point is not possible. Mm. Well, much more is, Lord willing, going to be said on this subject and is being said uh, on the mediums that you've already alluded to. But uh, this episode is kind of serving, in a sense, uh, to be just a teaser or an appetite wetter for all different types of subjects that pertain to Van Til. So we'll transition and pivot here once again and give you another opportunity to speak to another aspect of Van sure, Til. Sure, sure. Although he's best known for his work in apologetics, Van Til was also significantly involved with polemics throughout the course of his ministry. Two of the men that he devoted ample critique towards were the likes of Karl Barth and uh, Gordon Clark. So for the benefit of the listener, would you be willing to provide an overview of why Van Til expressed such strong concern about these men at various points in his ministry? And are the concerns that Van Til raised about these men still applicable to our own current context? Oh, wonderful question. Um, that is a, a switching of gears, but not as much as we might think. Uh, Van Til wrote the New Modernism and Christianity and Bardianism to critique Karl Barth. And um, the reason why is that Karl Barth departed, I'm putting this really basically, he departed from traditional historic reformed Trinitarianism and denied the covenant of works. Any Bart scholar will tell you that. Bart was trying to actualize the Trinity. Uh, he was departing from the covenant of works and wanted the covenant of grace, God's relation to all men and Jesus Christ to be central. And if, if I could put it in, in basic terms, Bart does two things that are so much like Rome that Van Til had to critique him vigorously. Number one, the Roman Catholic tradition says, traditionally, uh, it's historic expressions, Robert Bellarmine, Trent, Aquinas behind that. They say that Adam was created in a way in which he was deficient. He, he needed grace to reproportion him to the divine essence, ontologically. He needed grace to help him with concupiscence ethically. He was defective. He needed grace. Well, Bart radicalizes that, and he says that the first man, Adam, was immediately the first sinner. Now, Bart's not a big advocate, obviously, of the historical Adam, 
But he's wanting to say this, that insofar as Adam represents humanity as a whole, there has never been, this is almost a quote from his RD4, there has never been a golden age. There was never a man without sin in history. The first man was immediately the first sinner and stood in need of grace. So in that way, he radicalizes the Roman Catholic doctrine of concupiscence. But then he dimensionalizes the doctrine of grace. For Rome, grace is just infused inside of Adam when he's created. Right after he's created, it's given to him to offset the problem of concupiscence. For Bart, grace is Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ does not exist in history, in the plane that we see, the dimension we see. He exists in a supratemporal realm, Bart called Geschichte, where Jesus Christ has always been the being of God in becoming for us. God's being has always been in becoming in the event of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. Jesus Christ is the image of God. Jesus Christ is reconciliation to God, and he is this as God's yes for all men. Bart is a universalist. And so instead of Jesus coming down from heaven to deal with Adam's sin after the covenant of works and then rise back into heaven and sit at God's right hand, Bart says Jesus Christ has always, from the very beginning of the God-world relation, been the incarnate, revealing, reconciling event of salvation for all men. And so Bart has this dialectic between Adam in history and Christ in Geschichte. Christ is God's yes for all men. Adam is God's no um, to God. And the yes overcomes the no. And so Van Til saw that and he said, you know what? Think, what is Orthodox Trinitarianism? God is self-contained. God doesn't change. What is Orthodox covenant theology? God enters into a covenant with Adam who knows no sin prior to his fall, enters into a covenant of works with him, Adam falls, and then, and only then, the Messiah is needed, promised, comes in history, redeems his people, enters into history, and then rises up into heaven to bring his people where he is. Van Til looked at those two models, that orthodox model I just described in Bart, and he says, given the way Bart radicalizes concupiscence, dimensionalizes that Christ event, makes it forever inaccessible. Bentil said, that's a different religion. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you this. I think he's 100% right. And here's an irony. Um, I extended this invitation to Bruce McCormick a while back. Bruce McCormick and his work in the Cambridge Companion, in the di critically realistic dialectical theology of Karl Barth, in Orthodox and Modern, um, the conclusions that McCormick reaches about Bart's theology are virtually indistinguishable for the conclusions that Van Til reaches about Bart's theology. The only difference is McCormick hails Bart as the greatest genius in the history of the church and says we must follow him into the brave, strange new world beyond the Reformation, beyond the rationalism of the Reformed Orthodox. And Van Til looks at it and said, it's a different religion. Give me 
that old-fashioned Calvinism of the Institutes, that old-fashioned Trinitarianism and covenant theology of the Reformed uh, standards. Give me what Voss taught me, not what has come from Bart. Now, very quickly on, on um, uh, Gordon Clark, what you might find interesting is Murray was actually more robustly critical of Gordon Clark than Van Til, and they were the ones originally in the historical context going at it on incomprehensibility. But Van Til saw in Gordon Clark's theology, now I'm going to put this in my own way just to try to I'm going to try to bring the sum total of Antill's work to bear on Gordon Clark. It's going to differ from uh, what Frame says at points in his Van Til, uh, uh, an analysis of his thought. It's going to differ from what Scott Oliphant said, uh, because um, I'm not a mutualist like Dr. Oliphant. I don't affirm God is mutable and passable and changes. Uh, so there are going to be some differences with Dr. Oliphant too. Uh, but the bottom line is this, Van Til thought, that the moment Gordon Clark posited univocity with regard to divine and human knowledge, Gordon Clark had to posit univocity with respect to divine and human being. Why? God is simple. You cannot segregate God's being and knowledge. You cannot have univocism between creator and creature in one and not the other. And so Van Til was saying to Clark, if you're going to say there's univocism with respect to knowledge, go all the way and say there's univocism with respect to being. Say that God and man are both in becoming and both in ignorance. Both are developing in being, both are developing in knowledge. Say that if you want univocity, because the only kind of being and knowledge that we have is finite being and ignorant knowledge. We're growing. We're developing and we're learning. God's not. So any conception of univocity of any kind, Van Til said, is a fundamental denial of the creator-creature distinction and the self-contained and self-complete character of God's being and knowledge. And so Clark is a kind, if you can think of it this way, Clark's univocity in one area, you can think of it this way. Gordon Clark is training wheels toward John Frame and Scott Oliphant. Uh, he's training wheels toward Karl Barth and Dorner. So I'm not just picking on Frame and Oliphant. All mutualists believe that God's being and God's knowledge are in development. All of them. That's what makes them mutualists. If you change the word personalist, all of them locate change in the persons of the Godhead so that they are undergoing development in their being, they're becoming, and they're growing in their knowledge. And so when, when, when Van Til is saying to Clark, you know, if you affirm univocity in knowledge, you must affirm it in being, what Van Til was basically saying to him is you are training wheels toward Bart. You are moving toward Bart, toward Dorner. All of it and frame weren't around yet, but the, the you know, the, the, there, there's a, a unity between the modernist biblicists who say God is in becoming and the, the evangelical biblicists who say God is in becoming and is being in knowledge. And Van Til was saying a pox on all of those houses. Why? Well, brothers, Van Til robustly, 
relentlessly, more than any other theologian in the 20th century, denied correlativism between God's being and God's knowledge on the one side and man's being and man's knowledge on the other side. There is no correlativism. And he thought Clark was baby steps toward a full-orbed, correlativist, mutualist, pantheist doctrine of God. And I think he's right. And the irony is that some of Van Til's own ostensible defenders have gone well beyond Gordon Clark and posited um, divine ignorance and divine becoming, which is stunning. Well, we've been talking with Dr. Lane Tipton about the thought of Cornelius Van Til. And Dr. Tipton, as we draw our conversation to a close, and it has been an absolute treat to hear all of your insights on Van Til during our time together today. I was wondering if you could provide any final words of encouragement for our listeners on Van Til, or if there's uh, any Van Tilian resources that you'd like to recommend to help our listeners become better acquainted with his thought. We'd love to hear those insights from you today. Oh, sure. Well, let me let me say this. I, I think what I appreciate most about Van Til um, is not his brilliance or theological acumen or systematic grasp of Reformed theology or the application of it to all forms of correlativism. Van Til was a profound yet simple and sincere Christian who served Christ's church. And so at the end of the day, I hope this is an encouragement to all who are listening. What matters is not mastering high-flown theological vocabulary or trying to flex theological muscle or be ostentatious and self-aggrandizing to show how much knowledge I have, how brilliantly I've canvassed the whole history of theology or, um, or, or philosophy. Van Til's concern all along was faithfulness to the self-attesting Christ of Scripture and service of a little wilderness outpost called the Orthodox Presbyterian Church that once upon a time, doesn't anymore, had an Orthodox Westminster Seminary, Old Westminster. And he, con he was concerned about faithfulness, not influence, not affluence, not um, brilliance, not anything other than being faithful to the one of whom and through whom and to whom are all things. And that preaches. That is precisely what God calls every single Christian to, is a sincere, humble trust in the Lord, a walking in the light of his word, an embracing of the cross of Jesus, a rising up to walk in newness of life, and a seeking to be faithful in what the Lord has called us to do. Van Til can enrich us in this way. He can help the bunny rabbits to eat a little higher on the tree. He can help the giraffes to see more clearly all the terrain. His theology is extremely useful to all because he's not first and foremost an academic. He's not a professor. He's not trying to make a name for himself at the detriment of other people. He's not trying to preserve some kind of legacy or something like that. Van Til is just a faithful churchman. And I would say this, uh, one of the most, uh, uh, one of the two things that I think everyone should read, I think everyone should read John Meather's Cornelius Van Til, uh, Reformed Apologist and Churchman with PNR. It's just a beautiful biography of Van Til, and you see the churchman come through over and over again. Some of his disciples who have tried to innovate 
or developed beyond him who have engaged in great doctrinal error, deviation, they do so because they're seeking institutional clout and reputation, and they've lost sight of the sincerity of Van Til's service to the church. And that's just a wonderful reminder that he's first and foremost just a humble Christian servant. And that is so important to remember. Secondly, uh, and I don't know if it's in print, but Greg Bonson's Van Til's Apologetics Readings and Analysis, I'll just say this, that of the second generation Van Tilians, um, Bonson is head and shoulders above them. Uh, in terms of a systematic grasp of Van Til, in terms of his apologetical method, in terms of competing systems in apologetics, and in terms of walking a person through in a systematic way Van Til, he is vastly superior to any others that you'll find in that second generation. And he's got a, I'll say one other, uh, you know, re rem remembering, of course, that his theonomy and postmillennialism are not to be admired or emulated. But as far as the as as Van Til's apologetic goes, just wonderful grasp of it. He's also got a popular volume that I always recommend. So there's my third one. Um, the always ready. Um, directions for defending the faith. It's accessible. It's easy to understand. It's basic. It is um, a a wonderful introduction. And then after you've looked at those sorts of things, gotten your feet wet, then I do think that some of the classes we've had, Dewey, at Reform Forum, some of the things that Camden and Jeff and Jim and Glenn and others, uh, Carlton Wynn and Camden and I do a Van Til group uh, with Reform Forum. Then once you get some of those uh, resources in place, then you can really start to spread your wings and fly a little higher and drink a little deeper of Van Til. But, uh, but that, I would say for starters, that Meether volume is just a wonderful intro to Van Til, the churchman and the theologian and the servant of the Lord. Amen. Well, Dr. Tipton, it's been a joy having you on to discuss the subject of Cornelius Van Til. So I just want to say thank you so much for your willingness to join us today and for all that you're doing for Christ Church. You've been a a dear friend and mentor to me now for about two years and lord willing hope to continue to glean from your scholarship uh, as the lord allows you to continue to make advancements in this field of your studies so thank you so much for everything that you're doing sir well dewey thank you austin thank you it's just been a delight and um we'll have to do this again sometime thank you for having me can't wait for the course and warmest blessings on your labors brothers thank you again Yes, sir. And to our listeners, we hope you've been richly edified by today's episode on the Covenant Podcast, focusing on the thought of Cornelius Van Til. Until next time, we wish you grace and peace in the Lord. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.